I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Are we talking already? Is it we're totally recording? talking. No, yeah. shit, I didn't realize. This is, this is actual talking. Oh my God. No, okay, what, sorry, I thought we were pre-talking. No, the banana. Well, we're sort of pre-talking. Pre-talking is most of what this podcast is. It's just a lot of pre-talking. Going <laughs> stage, stage, stage door, Johnny. Stage, stage, stage door, Johnny. Not a lot of rhymes with Johnny, but here it is, Stage Door Johnny. Hello, and welcome to Stage Door Johnny, the podcast about theatre and life and life in the theatre. Now, I've been so ridiculously lucky to have amazing actors as guests on this podcast, incredible directors, amazing playwrights. Have I had one of the world's leading novelists to talk to? No, no, I haven't. Well, this joint is about to get classed the way up because my guest this week is the incomparable Zadie Smith. Now, you're thinking, uh, hang on, no, 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 this is supposed to be a theatre podcast. Zadie writes novels and short stories and essays, and you'd be right, but Zadie also writes plays now. Zadie adapted Geoffrey Chaucer's famous medieval text from the Canterbury Tales, The Wife of Bath, and she set it in the landscape of her creative life in Wilsdon, in northwest London, and called it The Wife of Wilsdon. And it's playing at the Kiln Theatre uh, in Wilsdon right now in Kilburn. And um, it's about to go off to the Brooklyn Academy of Music uh, for a further run. So there's a new relationship in Zadie's life. And it's a relationship with the theatre. And it's fascinating to talk to her about the difference from what she's done all her life to this form that she finds herself writing for and sort of really intrigued by. Um, oh, and by the way, when we refer to Nick, that's Nick Laird, her husband and ridiculously brilliant poet and novelist. We met on a chilly January morning in North London this year, January 2023. And it was just wonderful to sit down in Zadie's office and talk to her, first of all, about how I could be sitting there talking to Zadie Smith, powerhouse performer. And indeed, you know, who knows? She might yet be Zadie Smith, powerhouse performer. She can sort of do anything, as you'll hear, if things had just gone a little bit differently. Ladies and gentlemen of the Stage Door Johnny Company, this is your beginner's call. Ms. Smith and Mr. Cake to the stage, please. Ms. Smith, you may face away from the audience and sing if you feel more comfortable. That is your prerogative. Ladies and gentlemen, to the stage, please. This is your beginners. Let's start with this. Do you remember the first time you were ever in a theatre? I think the first time I was in a theatre, I might have been on stage. Oh. Because I, that was like my big fantasy when I was a kid. It's either being in The Wizard of Oz, which was like the... Brent pantomime that year. I auditioned, I got in. Hang on. What sort of age are we talking? 
I was still in primary school, so I couldn't have been more than 10, probably younger. That was the first time you think you'd ever actually walked into a theatre. But I'm sure if my mother was here, she was very culture hungry. I definitely remember seeing Alvin Ailey, the all-black dance troupe, came to London. I would have been very young when I saw that. But the first theatre, I think I... Maybe the tricycle itself. Because we lived around the corner and we were often in there. Tell me about auditioning for The Wizard of Oz. I mean, at that time I was trying to get... I was trying to get a lot of auditions. It was just... You were trying to get a lot of auditions? I was, but it it was a completely... um, It was a complete delusion because, of course, I was black and the, the parts that I thought would be open to me, like Annie and all that kind of stuff, is what I wanted to do. I'd turn up and, you know, it just wasn't... It wasn't an option. Yeah, well, it just wasn't an option. Did anyone ever say that? You didn't have to say it. Like, you'd, you'd sing for a second and then they'd be like, okay. And I knew I could sing, so I was like, well, well, what's going on here? Wow. And that delusion went all the way into college where I auditioned for Guys and Dolls. But I knew I, I could do, and uh, I walked in and they, I could just see the boys auditioning were just like, uh... Even at college? Yeah, that's 1994. Are you actually yeah. kidding? Yeah. You're going to write on Cambridge University. No. I think it's changed now, but I was doing Adelaide. I know that song back to front, but they were looking for a, a blonde. You know, it was quite specific, you I know, love back then. that you're still pissed off. <laughs> I'm a little pissed off. About. But no, it was, it was a good thing because um, I could never have done that life. But anyway. Hang on, hang on, hang on. We, 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 we're going way too quickly through this. <laughs> yeah, I could, I never, could have never have done that life. I love the phrase, I was, try- I was looking for a lot of auditions I was, I was, at the age I of was a little, 10. I was making my father take me to places. And I, I think it... Well, like Anna Cher stuff and like kids We had acting. a huge argument when I was 10, 11, about to go into secondary school, where I wanted to go to one of those places. Yeah. Anna Cher or the other one. And my parents just said no. And I really am so grateful they said no, but it, but I was really angry for yeah. a bit. And then I wanted to go to uh, the LaGuardia School for Performing Arts because I'd seen fame. Right. I mean, all these like, dreams were like living in a council estate in Boston, Maine with no money. Like it was complete, it was a fantasy world. Well, I mean, Anna Cher, which is a famous, Anna, no, those, yeah, it could have famous theatre, right, in, in, in Islington? I don't, yeah. yeah. And the other one, which I'm blanking on, but. me too. One of my daughter's friends who lives in the estate next door goes there. You know, they give yes, scholarships. Yes, exactly. In. It could have happened, but I think my mum's point was more like yeah, what were they just edu- over my dead body. <laughs> Why? Why do you think that was? Neither of my parents were educated, and it meant a lot to them to be educated. Like, right. my dad was out of school at 13, my mum at 15. They just didn't want me to, to do it. And right. I'm actually really grateful that they stopped me. But they were happy for you to be in school plays as long as it didn't interfere with. Yeah, I mean, I, I was doing studies. tap dancing. I was singing and doing acting. I did acting classes at the Tricycle. Did you? I did all of that stuff, but they just wanted it to be on the side. And then sometimes when I, I've never talked about this stuff. It's so weird to think about no, now. But is... you know that awful. It was a Saturday talent show. I think it was Noel Edmonds. Right. Massive TV show, and it was all talents. You could be a magician, a singer, an actor, whatever. And I made my dad take me there, and it, were, it was at Ali Pali, I think. And just like you do it now, the boys, whatever, it's like 3,000 people. And they audition you in the hallways, you know, to get the group smaller and yes, smaller and smaller. Yes. And I got down to like a really small group, you know, like the last 30 or whatever. I, was, I must have been 12. And uh, I was singing a Whitney Houston song. And then 
we had to do it for the actual TV guys, you know, for the yeah. proper thing. I was singing, uh, I believe the children have a future, whatever that fucking song is called. And when it got to it, I, my nerves were just overwhelming. I'd never really used a microphone before. So then I, I said to them, is it okay if I sing, but I don't face you, like if I face the wall? Ugh. And they were like, cool. So I sang the song. And then one, one of the producers said to me afterwards, it, you sang great, but we don't have any need of singers who sing to walls. And that was that for a long time. I didn't, oh, I didn't do mate. it again for ages. Mate. <laughs> you didn't perform again for no. ages. But the thing is, I wasn't that good. I was good for a 12. I was precocious. So I sounded like an adult singing at 12. And that was the gimmick. You know, like it's a gimmick, right. really. Like, look at me with this big adult voice at 12. But the older you get the precociousness fades because then you're around real singers who are just as good as you and you're getting older. And so I was lucky to get out when I did. <laughs> I'm so fascinated by this idea that there's a thwarted performer. I mean, not so thwarted. You, you know, recently so uh, you've been, you've been, you're doing all sorts of different things. You, you, you write, you contribute songwriting and you sing on Jack Antonoff's new album. You have acted in our mate Dolly Wells's <laughs> yeah. Movie, good posture, possibly other. I like films. show people. Like I still think of myself as a show person. Do I like you? to be around them, comedians particularly. I suppose I just think of us as a as a large community with different specialities. Or sometimes when I'm feeling a bit more negative about it, a large group of people with a generalized mental illness which has particular varieties. <laughs> <laughs> particular so, characteristics. Yeah, but I reckon you know you you recognize each other. Yeah, that's so cool. Do you do you ever feel resentful about your mum and dad's being discouraging? No, I I don't think it was for me. It doesn't it doesn't suit me. Like I see my brother, he is an actor. He's a really good one. Mm. He enjoys it. And my little brother who is now also acting <laughs> trying to act. Is he? Yeah, so I um and they always performed, you know, they were rappers, they were always on stage and and every now and then like I think on my 30th birthday, which was in a big pub around the corner my brothers performed, and then I sang with them. My brothers would tell you always, she oversings, she always oversang. And now, in confirmation, my children say, oh, please stop, you just, you oversing. When you say oversing, you mean belting? No, more like, I grew up in the age of Mariah Carey, so every sure. note is like fucking, Whitney. yeah, Whitney. Like, sometimes <laughs> it's nice, just leave a note alone. Just leave it alone. <laughs> leave stop it fucking with it. Leave it alone. I never understood that. And also... The honest truth is, I was an, always an imitator. So I used to, when I got into college, I used to make a bit of money doing imitations. So like I'd go to, <laughs> I'd go to old people's homes and sing Sinatra or sing uh, Ella Fitzgerald or Billy. I can do those voices, like right. imitations of them. And for a long time, I think I thought that was what singing is. Singing is not that. The fact that you can imitate somebody's voice, Roy Bremner can sing like various people. It's completely irrelevant. Right. Singing is an art form about emotion. And the one thing I never conveyed when I sang was feeling. Really? No, because I'm too busy trying to sound like somebody. Huh. That's not an artist. That's a karaoke singer. Right. And that's what I was, a, a good karaoke singer. Do you feel like there's a part of you, the performer part of you, that wants, still wants to find ways of expressing yourself? <laughs> like, I, I've had delusions over the years, like, it's like a delusion of thinking you're young, like still thinking that something's going to happen or 
Yeah, but that's delusional. I do think when everything is over, I had this fantasy of, I was talking to Tommy Kale, that guy who... Oh, yeah. Yeah, directed, directed Hamilton. He's a friend of mine in New York, and I said, Tommy, you know, like, when I finish writing my books and I'm, like, 60 to 70, I have this plan to just put on a tremendous amount of weight and just wear a great moo-moo, and I'd like... I'd like a show in the Carlisle, oh, where I just sing a jazz standard and I tell you some gossip from the literary world. And then I sing a jazz standard and I can't, I find it hard to stand. I just sit on a high stool. I would love that to be my <laughs> retirement plan. Tommy was like, well, well, let's see how it goes. But that would amuse me. Mate, I don't know why we're waiting until everything's over <laughs> no, for be, that. It would be a lovely, uh, that would be a lovely, that's my only performing fantasy. What was, what's, what, literally, what's stopping you from doing that? Now. I like things to be perfect. It is a flaw in my <laughs> methodology right. as a person and as a writer. I found it so painful the past five years watching my voice get smaller and smaller. It's to do with age, like your vocal cords. So my range is so small. And maybe very fit people feel it about sports, right? Like after a certain point, you're not going to get any stronger. Though you see men in the gym, I'm sure you're one of them, still in this delusional state. Like, I'm I finally, I'm going... <laughs> I could totally get it back. Finally. Just to me, it's like that. And, and watching my voice disappear, basically. I think probably if I was a professional and I practiced and trained and mm. that you can keep it, but I never did any of that. But so you think going. When, you're, when you're very overweight, when you're much older, it's going to come back? When more. I say very overweight, I mean just reverting to my hips. natural... I think I'm more naturally like a big person. I would like to... And also, when you're older, who cares? I mean, you just... Whatever, right, man. Right, no right, more right. gym. No more healthy eating. Just fun. And, <laughs> just residencies yeah, at the car just residencies at the car and, and very comfortable clothes. <laughs> oh, mate. I'm halfway there. I'm I cannot wait for the Carlisle years. <laughs> I can't wait for them. Oh, I'd quite like to go back to The Wizard of Oz. Yes. What, what, what did you play? I was uh, not exciting. I was... Uh, what are they called? Uh, lit- no, yeah, Munchkin. A Munchkin with my yeah. friend Polly. We were both Munchkins. Great. And it was exciting. Yeah. Was it? It was exciting. And did you say it was at the tricycle? No, it was in the Brent Town Hall. Oh I yeah, think. right. And in fact, a, a good friend of mine, my best friend actually, her daughter was recently in the Hackney Empire Panto auditioned and got in, and so I went to see it, and it was it was a strange memory of <sighs> what that's like. So with adult actors, professionals, you know, uh, usually. Yeah. TV people of some kind, then there's a chorus and then there's a children's element. And uh, I loved it. Yeah, it was great. When you, oops. Oh. When you went back in, yeah. just now, did you say recently, to see the yeah. Hackney Empire? Empire it, yeah, they're the famous panto every year. And, and yeah. you had performed there? It, no, Hackney Empire is, is the king of panto. Yeah, right. So nothing better in London and then right. it goes down from there. So the Brent Panto, God love it, is a good panto, Got but it. not like this. Got it. This thing. So, what are your memories of that Wizard of Oz? You, you were, you were, had a Munchkin mate. You were yes. Munchkins together. Do you remember anything about what did the strange? Was there anything about the strangeness of the theatre or being on stage? Did you feel comfortable there? Or did you no, feel like you wanted to face the back wall? Again? I love the backstage and the way the props are all laid out in a certain place, and the person who has to make sure that's all there, yeah. and the speed of what goes on behind. But out front. I've never been good, even now when I'm doing a reading, unless the lights are such that you can see not a single person. Right. If I see a person, it's over. (laughs) And even now, if I'm on stage in in a big thing in America, I always ask them, keep the house lights so I can't see anybody. So do you remember being nervous? Yeah, I was always very nervous. Were you? I was always nervous. Confident in 
in singing and dancing in a group, but I don't think I could ever have walked on alone. And watching my brother over the years do stand up, or I just, yeah, that is not for me. Huh. <laughs> and so you talked about your family, your mum being yeah. quite culture hungry. Absolutely. And yeah. so you would go see things. So there was an encouraging attitude, not, not that you should do it, not that you should spend your time. No, we saw a lot of black theatre, black ah. subject matter. There was a lot of that at the kilm. Right. Tricycle as it then was, yeah. A tricycle as it then was. She was just very, you know, there's a kind of harsh version of her in Swing Time, this kind of autodidact. But she wasn't harsh. She was very fun-loving. She was just always up for stuff. Yeah. Like going places, doing things. I think she's a bit like me in that it's harder to sit with children doing nothing than let's go do something. <laughs> right. You know, let's right. go to the zoo or let's go to a play. Or So we did a lot of that stuff, always finding what was free or cheap or subsidised for us or that kind of thing. Did she have any of the performer in her? Had she been on stage? Uh, you know, in? now she's written a novel. She? To add to the show people. And uh, <laughs> she absolutely loves doing literary events. Like the one benefit, I mean, there's a few benefits, but my mum writing a book means that when people ask me to go to something, I can now say, have you considered my brother or my mother? And that often works. Really? Yeah. Like if you need someone to present something, how about my brother? <laughs> and now I can also say my mother's around. <laughs> <laughs> and that is, has really worked out for me. So they both, they do really love being on stage. And Ben is like, he compares the BAFTAs sometimes or, yeah. or the team, whatever, one of those award shows. <laughs> and whenever he does it, and I bump into actors after he's done it, they always say, your brother was so funny. He was so, he's got that kind of MC vibe. Right. But both my mum and my brother, you know, if there's a party, it's they're where the party's at. Whereas I am not where the party's at, for the most part. It's interesting about your nerves. I'm so sort of fascinated by having to face the back wall to do that singing and then being penalised for it when they said you could. It was really... That's quite traumatic. It was quite dramatic, and also because I spent so much time practising these Whitney songs yeah. in my room, only ever attempting to imitate every single... Yeah. Never... When I hear my daughter sing, she can sing. If she sing an Amy Winehouse song... She does it her own way. Right. Whereas I can't sing an Amy song unless every single note is exactly where it's meant to be. And so I was always like that. But when I got in front of people, my hand goes, my voice starts, uh, the nerves. Oh. It's complete collapse. Yeah. yeah. So you did um, these drama classes yes. at, at the Tricycle, uh, it was yeah. now Kiln, where your play is on yeah, right so now. Weird, yeah. How does that feel? The magnetic pull of this part of London, right, for yeah. you creatively, has not only just been in your novels, right, but it's now yeah, it's crossed over into... Yeah. I mean, I, I think for me, because the play is not really a play exactly, and because it was written almost accidentally, I can't really take whatever you're meant to take in the play as a playwright. I don't really have that feeling. So, well, hang on, let's talk about Wife of Wilston. So... It was written accidentally. Literally and accidentally. it's not really a play. <laughs> it's not really a play. So it's so fun to go and watch, and it is great. Basically, Brent was applying to be the city of culture, borough, borough of culture, the that's what of it's culture. called. And I was in New York, and the woman spearheading the bid emailed me and said, do you want to be on this bid? And I thought, well, it's no skin off my nose. I feel guilty that I don't live in England. If I just say yes, there's no way Brent's going to win this bid. Fine. So I was just like, sure, put me on the bid. And then, of course, they fucking won the bid. 
You were like the sort of <laughs> trying to get the World Cup for Qatar. You were like the yeah. Beckham yeah. of Brent's exactly. bid for the borough. So we won the bid and then um and then this woman called Lois Stonock began emailing me a lot and calling me and I had quite a full I've got small children, I'm teaching, I'm trying to write a novel, and now I've added to it the Brent bit of culture. So I was not wonderful to Lois Stonock. I was like every time she rang I'd be like, Oh my god, I can't I can't do this. I can't add this to my list of things. And then one day she rang, I was in my office in New York at NYU and I had students queuing up and she phoned again. I was like, oh my God. She's like, what do you think you might do? And I literally was just looking at the shelf and that book, The Riverside Chaucer, was above my... So I just thought, oh, I said, what about if I did a kind of Bronsbury Tales, like Canterbury Tales, Bronsbury is the neighbourhood I live in here. And she was like, that sounds great. And then she got off the phone and I like picked up the book and I was like, Oh my god, what the fuck is it? To translate the Canterbury Tales would take 10 years. <laughs> like, I'm not doing this. Ridiculous. But there was something in the idea which was funny. So I thought, well, what about The Wife of Bath, which is the only one that anyone yeah. ever likes or reads, really? So, what about that? And what if I just translate like a few pages of it and they can put it in the Brent magazine and maybe they could make it a monologue for an actor and put it on in some like kiln showcase, whatever? And she was like totally satisfied with that. I was satisfied with that. And then. It was just before the pandemic and I had to go to Australia for a literary festival. And just before I was about to get on the plane, she called me and said, I'm going to do a PR, like a thing announcing this. Got it. And I wasn't really listening. And I, she said, read it out to me and she said, I said monologue. And she said, OK, I'll get blah, blah, blah. And then I didn't think about it again. And then I got on the plane and it takes a day to get to Australia, of mm. course, then night. And I got off the plane, I opened my laptop. Of course, if I had a smartphone, none of this would have occurred. But I opened my laptop and literally I had like 200 emails from people saying, it's so amazing you're writing a play. It's so great. <laughs> from the director of the kiln, everyone was like, what the fuck? My phone loads. So I said, Mon- what, what did you do? And she put it on Twitter. And I remember just being so stressed. And then I phoned my agent I was like look this terrible thing has happened they've I said I was going to write a little monologue and they've said I'm writing a play and it's all over Twitter and it's all over the internet she said well like I can't do anything like I can't take it off Twitter <laughs> you got to write a play you've got to write a play like it's either that or there was no second option so for a while I was just like like real state disbelief like I just like this cannot be happening to me so this is a joke but then I calmed down a bit and I read The Wife of Bath and I Immediately, I was like, I'd forgotten how extraordinary it is. It's mm. like really an extraordinary piece of work. And it's so outrageous. And also, I think everyone who reads it as an adult realizes that no matter what school you went to, state or private, they don't give you the whole text. They edit it. Because oh, really? it's just too, it's, it's so, so rude. rude. Yes. So I didn't know some of it because they just don't put it in. They the kind arse. of carefully. The arse out of the window. Yeah, it's it's extremely rude. So I was just kind of shocked and impressed actually and then started trying to translate it into the way we talk around here and it just immediately became quite a lot of fun and then a really an enormous amount of fun like I had a rhyming dictionary and you could do a little bit each day yeah. and really feel like you were achieving something which is what I love in writing is to feel that something's happening and then I finished it and uh, I just really didn't expect anything. And I felt very guilty about the kiln. I'd said to Indu, who is a director there, the artistic director, you do not need to take this play. Do not feel any pressure. You could take a little bit out of it. Like, 
I was backed into a corner. Now you've been backed into a corner. It's ridiculous. And she is very, um, you can't bully her. So she read it and then she said, no, this is, I think this is good. And I, I was really, I was kind of in this proxims of shame about it. Like, is this really happening? And, but she liked it. And then I kept kind of tinkering with it. And it was amusing me. Like I knew I was, I was finding it funny. Right. Like the translation was funny. So it went from Indu saying, yes, let's do a monologue. But then when she got it, she was like, but there's 10 actors in the script. You've, you've put all the things she speaks about as embodied people. Right. And I was like, yes, yeah, so what's the big deal? She's like, well, in theatre world, that means money. Yeah. I was like, I've never thought before in my life how many characters I'm allowed to have in something. Right. There's no financial right. constraint. No. So I was so shocked by it. She's like, this is too many actors. Like, this is a real... This is a, now a hard thing. I was like, okay, so let's just forget it then. I was like, immediately again, like, let's just forget this. She's like, no, let me think about it. We worked out how to kind of double up some people. So it's still 10 actors, but we managed to spread the parts amongst them. And I mean, I just kept on not really believing it was really happening. Mm. That, I mean, that really took a long time to understand it was happening. And then auditions. It, it was just, it was a surreal experience. You were in the room for yes, the auditions? Yes, that was the other thing. I thought, I've written a play, now leave me alone. Right, <laughs> that was right, my right, other right. thought. I thought, right. there's nothing else I have to do, surely. That's just the, that's the good bit. Yeah, it? I didn't realise that. I was just like, I've written a play, I'm in the middle of writing a historical novel, I've got so much work to do. Theatre people take the play and just make a play. Right. Whatever you do right. with plays, do it and leave right. me alone. And they were like, no, that's not how this is, you're going to have to be there. So then it was auditions, and that bit was actually, because a big part of my childhood were these Broadway fantasies of, I watched all the movies, you know, all the, from, you know, 42nd Street, the original, all the way to Chorus Line. Like, I've watched 40 years of Let's Do the Show Right Here. And I always imagined the three people in the dark and then the person who comes. So it wasn't like that, but it was, because it was COVID times, but it wasn't unlike that. It was like me, the casting director, and the director. And how did you feel about offering your opinions on the performance? I mean, the thing I loved most was reading the parts with them. Because at this point, I was still under the delusion that I was a great actor. Sure. And that all I had to do was do all my funny voices, and that was a play. <laughs> I really I really believe that. Whatever actor who walked in, I'd be like, sure, but have you, have you, have heard, you heard me? <laughs> really? You want to try this voice? I, the, the thing which really broke that, there were so many delusions that disappeared during this process, was meeting Claire Perkins, who plays Arvita. Mm. When she walked in... I had these strict physical ideas of everybody because I'm a writer. So I have these ideas of what people will look like. And Avita, in my mind, was much darker skinned, much taller, perhaps with dreadlocks. I had a vision in my mind. And Claire walked in, who's kind of a warmer complexion, not so dark, shorter, from South London. Mm. I mean, a lot of things. <clears throat> yeah, it's obviously a <laughs> Yeah, barrier. shocking, South London. And I thought, I mean, I've been reading Alvita's voice to myself as I was writing it all the way through and mm. thoroughly enjoying my Alvita. But when she read it, I was like, <laughs> it was just so different and so much better. And not just <sighs> a voice, but she's an extraordinary actor. And I mean, they all are, but because her part's the biggest... It's when I finally understood it. Like, I, I I, couldn't play this role. There is no way on earth I could stand on that stage and play that role. And I know that's obvious to everyone who knows me, but it really had been 
44 years of believing at some level well, well, because as that novel, I could do it. Well, because as a novelist, you are playing every part, right? Yes, yeah, sitting in, around. In yes. your study, in your brain. All the time, doing all the voices. You do all the voices, and yeah. the voices are brilliant. But that's not the same as acting. Right. And has that been the fundamental realisation of the difference between what you've always done up to writing this play and, and, yes. and now? Actors put themselves on the line in the moment. I, I pre-game it. I write the book. It goes to your house. I'm not there as you enjoy or don't enjoy. Right. I'm not present. Actors are present at the moment of reception. And that is all the difference in the world. And I, I had final proof of it this Christmas when COVID went through the cast again. Yeah. And the girl playing the pub landlady couldn't go on. And Indu phoned me what? on Boxing Day and said the thing that I've been waiting for since childhood. You know, like, let's put the show on right here. And I realised... I was like, Indu, I'm sorry, I can't. Oh. I'm not doing that. And poor Indu had to go on with her script <laughs> in her normal clothes. I realised I fundamentally did not want to do that. Oh, so fascinating. Yeah. I told myself it's because it's Christmas and I've got kids and blah, yeah, blah, blah. But yeah, I could have, yeah. Nick would have taken the kids. We could have, but I didn't want to. Wow. I didn't want to do that. Wow. <laughs> so did that you, was the did, final did, proof of the thing. <laughs> did it make you nervous to think of that, stepping in? Because no one expects anything of anybody who goes on. No, you probably I know. Book, but right? I, I, uh, it's only ever a triumph when I somebody stands in. I really didn't want to. God. Do you feel like <laughs> it was, it was so like, surprising. Do you feel like it was the answer to... You know, all it those. A, it was a good conclusion because Nick would always have said up. she can't wait to get on stage. <laughs> but turns out she can. I think I can. Even though you put yourself in the play, right? There's the character. Yeah, I'm the in author. the play, and there was often discussion, like if we're doing a fundraising night, would I play the author? Yes. I no. don't know. No. I don't think I can do those things. It's so interesting. <laughs> this itch, which you obviously had when you were a it. kid, yeah. it was it a really important passed. impulse. Yeah, <laughs> it has really sort of metabolically. Yeah, it's changed. I think it's changed. Whatever I... I mean, what you really want is is the love of strangers. That's what actors really, really want. Yeah. And I I don't think I want that anymore. Right, right. (laughs) Well, that's a rather lovely thing to realize, isn't it? Yeah, I think it's okay. But um, every show person has their own pathology. And I, though I'm not an actor, I, I love the pathology of actors. I really am very fond of it. Yeah. But it's not mine. Was there anything in the, this accidental, slightly <laughs> forced, uh, headlocked creation that has made you feel like, oh, hang on, this is an avenue of my creativity that I wouldn't mind walking back down again? Yeah, absolutely. Really? Yeah, I mean, I really... It was in the rehearsal room when I went. I mean, Indu knows this, you won't be shocked to hear this, but I really went on sufferance. I wanted to write my novel. I couldn't believe I had to be somewhere every day between like 10 and 5 like and that's also how sport I am like I don't you know I don't nobody makes me go anywhere I just sit right. at my desk every day and so it was just a sh- complete shot even though it's round the fucking corner I really experienced it as <laughs> like an imposition on my time but when I got in there I was just really just I honestly just kind of humbled and moved by the actors I if Nick had been there, I think we would have both been sniggering like school children. But I hope he would have come to the same conclusion as me, that these people were, were so much more mentally healthy than we are. Huh. Like, they just they just met. Like, they were in the room. They just yeah. met. And they're already doing, like, warm-up exercises with their butts in each other's yeah, faces. Yeah. I couldn't believe it. I'd never seen a group of people so apparently physically comfortable with each other within yeah, an hour. yeah. 
I've got writer friends I've known for 25 years yeah. and I find it hard to hug them. I thought, what the fuck? Yeah. What are, who are these people? The bravery and openness the of openness. actors of that tribe. I, I know. It's we, it's berserk. We get, we get such a lot of shit for the public perception of actors, of course, as we all know, is of something really, you know, of something sort of insignificant, infantile, self-aggrandizing, you know, all that stuff. But actually... I've always found actors, as you quite rightly say, sort of part of the healthiest people I've ever so met. So healthy. Because and they are so trusting, so open-hearted. Yeah, I'd never seen so anything brave. like it. And within two weeks, I thought, you know, particularly because my cast is, uh, I'm looking at a photograph of them right now, there's like, what have we got? We've got three, uh, two black men of Caribbean descent, mm. one a black man of uh, African descent, Two Caribbean women, one South Asian descent, a Scotsman, a white English girl, and another mixed-race descendant of Caribbean parents. So you've got like a mini England, basically. And watching them every day, being so kind of careful with each other and accepting and open, I was like, well, this this is a very nice version of like a mini society, not to mention the guys doing the music, the stage manager, everybody just working together to make this thing. And of course, because it wasn't a play, like Indu made it a play, really. It was just a kind of exercise. The actors took these things and made whole scenes. Like if you ever go and see it. Mm, I'm going to go see it. They animate every story she tells. Like it happens in front of you and it becomes like a lovely metaphor for that thing I loved about those old Judy Garland movies when I was a kid. Let's put the show on right here, you know, with nothing. They kind of do that in front of you throughout the whole play. So it feels very like a play about plays. And it's just amazing. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. All right, that's the end of the first part of my conversation with Lady Zadie. Please join me for the second part. If you enjoyed that wonderful 
chat, that stuff about, gosh, the racism she encountered when she was a young girl trying to get theatre parts and then at college too. And that extraordinary story of being betrayed when she was doing her Whitney Houston song for an audition for possibly Noel Edmonds. And they didn't want her, even though they'd said that you can turn around and sing it to the back wall. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> what it's like to be a performer really gave me goosebumps thinking about that sort of all that hope and expectation being dashed. Anyway, listen, the second part of our chat just only gets better. We find out about how a production of Measure for Measure influenced her novel NW, um, what it was like and how influential it was to watch the Stephen Lawrence verbatim play at the Kiln when Zadie was uh, a bit younger and wanted to do things now that are only uh, scary and challenging for her, like write plays. Yeah, the role of the reader in a novel versus the audience in a play. Oh, we get a sneak preview of her new novel. Mm. And what it's also like to perform the part of Zadie Smith. And finally, whether or not my daughter Phoebe, who sings the theme tune of this podcast, might end up playing a giant rodent for Zadie. Stage, stage, stage door, John. 